Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been in a series through the book of Lamentations. And let's be honest, Lamentations on the surface is one of, if not the saddest book of the Bible. There aren't many, very many verses to pull from for bumper sticker inspiration uh, in this book. There is not a lot of source material for those stylish prints that you put in your house that have scripture. Uh, I've not been to any of your homes that have Lamentations on the wall, right? Because there's not a lot of good source material for that. And yet, these poems are so important to us. They reflect and are honest about the human experience, which includes suffering. Uh, These poems speak healing and God's redemption into the guilt that we feel when we perpetrate sin. Or Or they help to heal the shame that we feel when we are sinned against. Lament, uh, these poems and our own laments allow us opportunity to express confusion about the way that life runs sometimes, right? We all go through seasons where we are utterly confused about how the world actually works. And these laments give language and voice to that. They also offer us an opportunity to protest, uh, to, to let God and to let others know what is not right in the world. This is an injustice. And we name the pain. We name the injustice. We name the sin as a way of inviting God's healing and redemptive work into that space. We've also been reminded that lament is not the loss of hope, but an expression of it. Uh, the, the lament in some way, uh, th- that is to say that we wouldn't lament something is wrong if we didn't expect that it would somehow be made right. And so what we've learned as we've walked through this is that these poems of lament even go so far as to critique celebrity, celebrity culture, and reveal the suffering of the vulnerable. I think it's been an important journey. It's one for me as, as I've studied it and as I've kind of lived in Lamentations over the last few weeks during Lent. It's been formational for me. I've not, uh, before this series, I've not ever considered Lamentations for a sermon series. And yet, it just seemed so timely and so right to try to tackle it. And so it's been an important journey. I hope it's been for you as well. And even during this series, we have had events in the world that have reminded us of the need for lament. The shootings in Atlanta and then in Boulder, right close to home, have reminded us of how important it is to have a language of lament. Without lament, we actually have no language to feel the weight of these events in our lives and in our nation. And and the danger is if we're not willing or if we don't go through the hard work of feeling the weight of those events, we actually run the risk of accepting them as normal. If we don't feel the weight of those events through a language of lament, we run the risk of accepting them as normal. And while these tragedies may happen on a regular basis in our nation, we cannot accept them as normal. 
nor can we accept it as this is just the way things are. And so lament gives language to feel the weight and then also serves as a bit of a motivation, particularly as the people of God who serve the Prince of Peace, to try to figure out how do we become peacemakers in our world? How do we become a prophetic witness to the world, not as it is, but to the world as it one day can, or as it can be and one day will be? That's the prophetic role of the church, is this kind of ragtag group of people who otherwise may not find themselves in shared life together, but to bear witness to something beyond themselves, and that is God's new creation, right? There's a pretty good theology of the church. It's not a place that we primarily come for spiritual encouragement, although that's part of it. It's not a place that we primarily come to hear good preachers, although I hope that's part of it. It's a place that we kind of gather together to share life, to grow spiritually so that we can be a prophetic witness to the world of what God's new creation might look like in our time and in our world. And so my prayer is that, that through lament, through this expression, this unique expression of hope, that we would not only have a full-bodied language of faith, but that we would also be motivated to be a prophetic witness in the world. And I was, we've never been more reminded of that than we were this week. Now, as we get to chapter five, the final poem in Lamentations, there's actually a break in the structure. The structure has been very, very consistent throughout in the first four poems. You'll remember that in the chapters one, two, and four, uh, they each follow the same structure, the alphabet structure, where uh, each verse, or what we know as a verse, uh, begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then chapter three follows that same structure, just expands on it. So instead of one verse, you get three verses for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so you have this really ordered um, way of communicating the chaos that is going on in their life. The poet is essentially saying, this is one thing that I can control. My whole life is in chaos and out of order, so I'm going to communicate that chaos in an order, organized and ordered way. It's the one thing that I can kind of control. It's a way of the poet spelling out the suffering of the Israelite people from A to Z. But what you find in chapter 5 is that structure is completely abandoned. And the, the angst, the frustration, the anger, uh, the disappointment of the poet essentially explodes into a chaotic poem. Any sense of, of structure is all gone. Now, it's still 22 verses, but it doesn't follow any structure at all of what we've seen up to this point. And so it's the poet the poet's grief explodes and they can hold it in no longer so that now their poetic expression of the chaos is actually chaotic itself. And so, as we did in Lamentations chapter 1, where we read the whole chapter, I want to bookend this series by giving us the whole of chapter 5. And I'll be reading from the, uh, from the new international version, the NIV. So here's Lamentations chapter 5. And remember, this is... In Hebrew, it's chaos, right? So it says this. Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must buy the water that we drink. 
and our wood can be only had at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels and we are weary and we find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and to Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us. There is none to free us from, our, from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been ravished in Zion, the virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands and elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has churned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. There's a, there's a whisper, a glint of hope in that verse. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. But why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return and renew as to the days of old. Unless, unless... You have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, you may have noticed right away that this lament is a bit of a different flavor than the ones that we've heard up to this point. In the first poem, we heard from a narrator and then... Uh, Jerusalem was personified as a widow. In the second poem, we, had, we heard the similar voices, uh, the only distinction being the blame for the suffering was placed squarely on God's shoulders in the second poem. In the third poem, it was a more personal prayer of one coming from one person who suffers. And in the third chapter, again, that's the one that Grace talked to us about. We get the, the one sign of hope that his mercies are new every morning and great is God's faithfulness. And then in the fourth poem, we mostly get a narrator comparing the past uh, to the present, the, the glories of the past, the, the bounty of the past to the suffering of the siege in the present. And so you get this kind of comparison back and forth, but from the voice of a narrator. But the final poem becomes a communal cry. And the pronouns begin to change, right? The language changes to we and to our. It's a cry about how the suffering of the, of the siege has affected members of their own community. Remember, they're calling it. Did you hear it? When they were calling out different members of the community, here's how this has affected boys and mothers and princes and elders, and so in all of these kind of poems, you get the personification of the suffering, you get the, the widow, you get the voice of the narrator, you get the voice of the, the personal suffering, the communal cry. 
But did you also notice in all of Lamentations, we don't ever hear the voice of God, not directly. The voice of God is utterly absent in the book of Lamentations. We don't ever hear from God directly. We never get an idea of what the, suf- of, of what the suffering, those who are suffering, think that God might be saying. Remember like in Job, which is a book full of suffering, but Job and his friends are constantly trying to figure out what God is up to, right? You don't have that in Lamentations. All you have is a cry to God, but there's never, never ever like some brainstorming about, here's what I think God might be actually be up to, <laughs> or what God might be saying. Instead, the assertive voice throughout Lamentations, and particularly in Lamentations chapter five, the assertive voice is the voice of those who suffer. Let's just sit with that a little while. The assertive voice in the book of Lamentations is the voice of those who suffer. Isn't it true that when we know someone who is suffering, we really, really want to fill that space with our fumbling words of comfort? (laughs) We are so uncomfortable to see someone suffering And we just want to fill the space with something. And so we often move right to what we think God might have to say in this situation. We often move to what we perceive that God might be doing. Uh, we, We sometimes come up with empty, let's just be honest, empty theological platitudes to try to fill the space of suffering rather than allow the voice of the one who suffers to speak. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a time and a place for discerning the movement of God and what is God up to and what is God saying. I'm not saying that those things aren't important. I'm saying that often we jump right to those things as a way of kind of filling the void or filling the space because we don't know what to do. But it's important just to note that the movement of Lamentations is toward the voice of the sufferer, toward the one who suffers. And here's why I think that is. And I want to be careful here, but I also want to be honest. And so if our toes are stepped on in the next few moments, um, let's just allow the Holy Spirit to step on toes. <laughs> but but here, here's why I think The movement of Lamentations is toward the voice of those who suffer. I think part of the reason might be this. The one who has the voice holds the power. The one who has a voice in any particular situation usually has some means of forming or shaping that situation. Let me give you some examples. Women, have you ever been made to feel powerless or voiceless in corporate meetings when you share an idea that is ignored, only to have a male colleague re-articulate the same idea and the idea get traction? I'm seeing a few women shyly say, yeah, I've experienced that. I know what that's like. 
See, in those situations, the female may be feel or very real, be voiceless in that situation and therefore have no power, no influence on the direction of that decision or that project. People of color may be made to feel powerless or voiceless when their cries of injustice are not heard. Or how about this one? Victims of gun violence may be made to feel voiceless when those cries to change gun laws are only ignored by those who have the power to make the laws. See, in any given situation, the person with the voice has the opportunity to, in some way, shape and form that situation. And so the movement of lamentations is it moves us toward the voice to those who are suffering. Again, there's a time and a place for the people of God to discern what is God saying and what is God doing. But could it be, church, that part of the discernment of what God is doing and what God is saying could come to us through the voice of those who suffer? But if the church or Christians are unwilling to listen to the voice of the sufferer, dare I say we are at risk of missing the voice of God in any situation. I'm on fire today. <laughs> and can I say, for the first time since coming back from the pandemic, I felt like a drummer today. It was just like, I just felt a little different at the drum set. So I'm feeling good today. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty spicy. So... Um, so here, so here's, what, uh, here's what Walter Brueggemann says. Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, the power of lament is that the oppressed are given the right to speak. And by speaking are then offered the possibility of rectifying justice. Wow. Now this is important, especially important when we consider it in the context of covenant. Uh, so I want to introduce another kind of thought of Walter Brueggemann using this idea of covenant. Covenant is an agreement between two parties, but it's different from a contract because a covenant emphasizes the relationship between the two parties. So a, so a contract is only concerned with the outlines, and if you break the contract, I have every right to get out of this relationship. A covenant is similar in that there's like, hey, here's your kind of part and here's my kind of part and we're doing this together and we're living this life. But when something is broken down, when one party doesn't uphold their end, a covenant emphasizes the relationship over the agreement and says, what can we do to heal the relationship, right? That's a covenant. And so a covenant emphasizes relationship. And one of the great truths of the gospel is that God has entered into covenant with humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the evidence of God's commitment to humanity. Despite all the times that we may sort of not hold up our end of the deal, that we may fall short of God's intention and glory and goodness for our lives, God says, I have entered into covenant with you through the person of Jesus Christ, and I am committed to seeing this thing through. And all the sinners in the house said, amen, right? That's right. Okay, so that's covenant. Now, here's Walter Brueggemann again. Quote, one loss that results from the absence of lament 
is the loss of genuine covenant interaction. Since the second party to the covenant or the petitioner has become voiceless or only has a voice that is permitted to speak praise and doxology. His point is this. Covenant relationship is not genuine unless both parties are given equal voice. This is permission for us to lament to God. This is permission for us to look out at the world and tell God what we see is wrong. And say, this is not right. God of all creation, would you step in and make it right? Would you step in and show evidence that this one day will be made right? Show me a world in which this will no longer be the case. Right? And so, there, so as Christians, we can faithfully cry out to God and long for the very thing we are taught to pray for, which is that the will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are kind of allowed that lament because of authentic covenant relationship. But if our voices are silenced and we are only allowed a voice of praise or doxology, we are not in authentic covenant relationship with God. And this is one of the great errors of the modern evangelical church who tries to constantly live in the elation of resurrection. We live in the hope of resurrection. We live with the certainty of resurrection. And all of that, and it is good news, and we are people of hope, but we live in genuine covenant relationship with God, which allows us space for lament. Does this make sense? And so Lamentations is an example of suffering, of the suffering victim being given agency and dignity of speaking up for themselves. Here's what author Sung Chan Ra says, quote, the movement from an advocate speaking on behalf of others to the sufferers speaking up for themselves offers hope to all who suffer, end quote. Right? So sometimes when we talk about justice work as the people of God or as a church, or in particular as Emmaus Road Church, as we talk about works of justice, we sometimes talk about um, being the voice for the voiceless. And there is room for that, and that is good and holy work. But there is also something to be said. That work of justice is not just speaking on behalf of those who are voiceless but actually daring to give voice to those who are voiceless. Not speaking on their behalf, but actually having the courage to allow them to speak. Because there is that, that restores human dignity. Now, we don't, um, we don't do a ministry that we used to call Renee's Hope. We don't do it any longer, but it has, in the life of Emmaus Road, been one of our longest-running compassionate ministries up until about a year or so ago when we didn't do the ministry anymore. That ministry was born out of our impact coordinator mingling downtown with people that, who found themselves homeless and just talking and smiling and, and providing human dignity to those who suffer. And the conversation was, 
So many people ignore me, I don't ever hardly get eye contact in a day. And so the fact that you have taken the time in this afternoon to talk, to laugh, and to restore human dignity means something. And so Renee's hope was born really just out of a simple idea of we want to restore the dignity of conversation with those who suffer. And so we would go and host a meal, and, and part of it was not just, oh, let's feed, but let's eat with was part of the goal. And, and I love now, and of course, COVID has changed everything, but, but part of faith family hospitality is families that are homeless. We don't just serve to, but we eat with kind of post-COVID, pre-COVID, when we're out of all of this and we can once again gather all around at one table, the idea is not that we come from on high as those who have plenty in order to give you. The idea is we as common human people come and want to share this table together. That's part of the goal. Because this idea of giving voice to those who suffer restores human dignity. And so my, I, my hope is that our work for justice and healing in our community would not just include working on behalf of others, but that we might be courageous enough to empower those who suffer to speak for themselves because justice work is always looking to restore human dignity as well. And that's a tall order, and it's challenging, and I don't have all the answers of exactly how to do that. And I can promise you that as a church, we won't always do it perfectly, but I can also say with confidence, we will always press toward that, right? And so there's kind of room for grace when we mess up and when we aren't doing it just right so that we can move toward this restoration of human dignity. Well, look again at how this thing ends. It is jarring. It is jarring how this poem ends. Keep in mind, this is how the whole book ends. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return and renew our days as of old. A word of hope. And then the last verse, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. and nothing else. Crazy. The book ends, the poem ends, with a question about whether God has utterly rejected the people and is angry with them. There is absolutely no resolution to this book and this poem. There is no truth bomb at the end. <laughs> there is nothing that is restored. It ends with a question about how God actually runs the world. It's like a song that ends in a minor key. Or it ends on not the, like the root of the key, right? We were in worship practice this morning, and um, whenever they talk about chords, I just tune out, right? Because I don't have to worry about that stuff. So they're talking about chords at the end, and they're like, we, and Daniel at one point said, we need to end on this chord so that it resolves. And it was right toward the end of rehearsal. If it was at the beginning, I would have said, let's not resolve it, because that would fit really well with this morning's sermon. <laughs> but, but Lamentations 
is not a pop song that resolves at the end, that has this kind of nice, feel-good ending. It just hangs with a question about how God runs the world. And remember, this is coming from a people, a real people, experiencing real suffering in real history. This has a real context. And I think that's rather true, isn't it? That sometimes there's not just this kind of clean resolution. Sometimes we are left hanging and, and wondering, what is God up to and how does God run the world? And so the siege comes to completion. The people are carted off into Babylon for the Babylonian exile. And then the prophet Isaiah takes up his ministry and begins to speak to the people who are now in exile, have gone through the siege, the violence, the disappointment, the famine, the loss of identity, all of that, and he says to the people, this is coming from the prophet Isaiah, he says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Proclaim to Jerusalem that her hard service has been completed. Later on, he'll say, in the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. He'll later say, clothe yourselves with strength and free yourselves from the chains that are around your neck. In other words, in the midst of exile and a total loss of identity and in the book of Lamentations that just hangs and there is no answer and no resolution, the prophet Isaiah steps in and in the midst of exile begins to speak of hope and of restoration and of freedom. These things, however, are not promised to come through economic success or political power. The prophet Isaiah doesn't say, hold on, you will one day be in charge and run this ship. <laughs> Rather, he begins to say, these, he gives, begins to share with them good news of a suffering servant who will come and restore relationship with them. Remember, exile is a feeling of utter displacement, loss of security, loss of relationship, loss of identity, and the hope is not economic success. Vote for Israel. <laughs> it's not any of those. It is God will send a servant to live among you to restore relationship with you. This is the good news of God. And it is made known and made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Israelite people in the midst of exile for generations and generations and generations would say, we've been through hell. And yet there is hope on the horizon. They would tell their kids, there's one who is coming. There's one who is coming. And so then the Apostle Paul will say, when time itself was pregnant and about to burst, then God sent his own son. And so the restored relationship and the inauguration of God's kingdom comes then through the 
ministry of Jesus Christ. And so after all of these words of lament, the unanswered questions that were still hanging in the air, all of those things are answered and brought to fullness in the life of Jesus, who does not take on political power, who does not promise of economic success, and who does not become a military servant or or military hero, but who becomes one who speaks of abundant life, not not economic success who talks of God's kingdom that has no national boundaries, which means the political parties don't know what to do with him. And then he comes not as a military hero, but as a suffering servant. This is what we celebrate at Palm Sunday. This is the Palm Sunday truth. That our Lord Jesus Christ is a unique kind of king a different kind of king. And we recognize each and every Palm Sunday that he came not with political or military force, but as one who loves even at the cost of personal sacrifice. That he comes as one who serves. He comes as one who proclaims a message of forgiveness, not conquer. And so, may the questions of our own suffering and the nature of our own laments find their rest in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the full revelation of God. Amen? Amen. That'll preach, won't it? That's good news. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray that in these moments, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would transform our spirits. And that you would help us to fully, not just realize in our heads, but to know in our hearts the great truth of Palm Sunday, that you are a unique God. You are a unique kind of king. That your kingdom knows no national boundaries, but is for anyone who will call upon you in faith. So Lord, again, as your people, may we faithfully bear witness to these truths. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.